Aloha! You are listening to the Dangerous Love Podcast. I'm your host, Chad Ford. Today, our guest, Jessica Murray, social change communication expert with Search for Common Ground, who's written some really interesting things that caught my eye, um, really powerful things around Black Lives Matter and what's happening right now in the United States and I uh, have a common friend in Emma Billings, Emma Fong, who a former student of mine that works for Search for Common Ground and just really thought, wow, Jessica, it'd be great to have you on and, and talk about you and your career and, and, and then talk a little bit about what's happening in the United States. So welcome aboard. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Jessica's joining us today from Medford, Oregon. Yes, I am. Southern Oregon. Southern Oregon. <laughs> Jessica, talk to me a little bit about you and your background and, and what got you into, you know, conflict work. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, um, yeah, so I'm a small town girl. And so it's sometimes, you know, I always get this question of like, how did you end up in international peace building? And I, you know, I kind of just tripped and fell into it. Um, so, which I feel like is not normally what happens. And so I grew up in a small a little Medford, Oregon. And um, so if you don't know, Medford is a um, pretty conservative white town. And so I um, grew up in pretty uh, white affluent community here. Uh, but here's the thing, I am black, or at least I am mixed, I'm biracial. So my story starts as, um, my mom, who was the prom queen, sports star, went off to college and came back pregnant with a black baby, and that was me. And so from the beginning of life, I was a little different, and I also, you know, was biracial. And so I was just, I think, so before I even knew about what it meant to be a peacemaker, I was always, I was always seeing a couple different sides of things. Um, and, and how things go. And I, and I saw what it was like to be different. And first, different actually seemed bad. Uh, it seemed like there was something wrong or something bad with my situation, with me. Um, and it wasn't until I got older that I actually started to see it as a strength. Um, and so I was um, part, and, and now I look back and I realize why I am the way I am. Uh, so I, you know, I started it was really important to fit in. And so for me, that was to be the best. And so I tried really hard at everything, whether it was school, whether it was sports, ended up getting a scholarship to go to UNLV, go Rebels, um, and played volleyball there, where I studied journalism and international relations. And um, from there, you know, life just took some really cool turns. I ended up being a student reporter in Ghana. That was my first introduction to, um, to any place abroad. I was an intern for Senator Harry Reid, came back to the States or came back to the West Coast, started doing messaging work at a television station around anti-child abuse, anti-domestic abuse, anti-sexual abuse, all those kind of things. Started getting, um, I ended up winning some awards for my messaging and I thought, you know, there has to be, I'm talking a lot about violence and there has to be a better way to stop bad things from happening before they happen. And I found my answer when I got, when I started working for Search for Common Ground, which is the world's largest peacebuilding organization. And so, yeah, I started as a new media coordinator, quickly turned over, uh, took over the, the whole comms department because there wasn't anyone else in the comms department at the time. And then, and then on we rode. That's a, I mean, it feels like there's so much that we can impact just in that, that story there and the connection to growing up and 
And like you said, those sort of feelings, maybe that there's something wrong with me and then sort of taking that and, and looking at your world and your community. What was that like growing up in a community that you told me was pretty white, um, but being biracial and how, how did that affect your identity as, as ultimately as a peace builder? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so, so one thing, and so I think a lot of people were concerned. I know I'm saying my black half was a little concerned of what it was like growing up in Southern Oregon. And for the most part, I was treated really well. Um, but for me, it wasn't so much about how I was treated, um, but how people looked at my mom. And I knew that it wasn't just because she had a baby out of wedlock. It was because she had a black baby out of wedlock. And there was something bad about being black. And I didn't have examples around me. Literally, Oregon is 2% white. And almost all that 2% is in Portland, Oregon. So You mean 2% uh, I didn't black? Ha- two, oh, sorry. Yeah, 2%, 2% black. black. Right, Thank yeah. you. Yes, 2% black. And it's almost all in Portland. So um, I didn't have those kind of examples. So all I really had was my education through a school system um, and through, you know, I had books and things like that. But I didn't really have, um, I didn't really know what it meant, like where I fit into the world. And, but I knew what it meant to be a great American. I knew what it meant to be a great Christian. My faith is really important to me. And ultimately, I think it was my faith that really led to peace building. Um, because at the time, I thought that I knew what was right and how you're supposed to behave. And this is the land of opportunity. If you do the right thing, good things happen. If you don't do the right thing, then bad things happen to you. And like, so I had this whole world view that completely got disrupted uh, when I got out of my own ecosystem. And I started seeing human suffering at a, at a whole nother level, both within the US and outside the US. It completely started to shift my worldview. And then I began to question myself, okay, like if I'm truly called to love others, like what does that look like? And, um, and that's what I found in peace building. I found in peace building this thing that was like, this is how we actually love people better. This is how, this is what we're called to do. Um, you know, when it says like pray for your enemy and turn the other cheek, this is actually what it's, this is actually what it's referring to. And so that's really where I became, started getting passionate about the field and really diving more in. Jessica, there's so many interesting things, again, that, you know, I want to ask you about, you know, you talk about, you know, Oregon being, you know, 2% white, and there's a history behind that. There's actual uh, structural reason um, behind that. Oregon was created as a state for white people. Uh, And I think a lot of people actually don't know this history. We know certainly about the South, and we look at the South a lot, and sort of understand what was going on there historically with slavery, and then after the, you know, the Reconstruction but Oregon has a, a, a pretty sordid past uh, when yes, it, it comes is. to discrimination and to this day, while, why there are so few African-Americans uh, in Oregon. Yes. No, it's, it, you're absolutely right. It was created as a white state. Um, it was, slavery was illegal, not because they didn't believe in slavery, but because they didn't want black people in their state. And there was actually an order to get everybody out that was, um, that was, I think it was non-white out of the area, but especially blacks. And even for a long time, there were curfews. I, I mean, there's people that I live with now in Medford that are adults that are like, I remember a curfew at some point. 
for people of color that still happen. So, I mean, these aren't, we often think, think of these things that happened like hundreds of years ago, but my grandmother, my, my black grandmother actually ended up growing up in a red line district in Portland um, when her family moved back, when they were able to like actually come back to our, or come into Oregon. And so these things did not happen long ago. And, and there's a history here that I did not understand um, and so what I understood as, you know, I was a child growing up where Fox News was on all the time, um, you know, not to be political, but that was all I had was media to tell me about uh, the black community and what it meant to be black and, and things did not look good. And what I, and it was, it's also a culture of like, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Like if you are not successful, it means that you're lazy or that you're criminal or, or that you're trouble, you're just a troublemaker. And it took a while to realize how long I fought against those stereotypes. I always had to prove myself. And, you know, growing up, I was, I was so straight-laced. I mean, I didn't swear. Like, I'm a t I was a teenager. I, didn't ne I never swore. Like, I didn't drink. I didn't smoke. I didn't get a single B from middle school, high school to college. Like, and it's not that I'm crazy smart. I'm not, I just like, I had a crazy stake because I, I refused to, um, to fall into that badness that I thought was reflected on my skin color. And so I fought really hard um, against that. And it's, it's taken me a long time to realize what it was and to be able to relax off of that and realize that it doesn't reflect me. Like I'm not a bad person, you know? And, but it's crazy how that stuff just affects you as a kid and you don't understand um, you don't understand what it is. And if I didn't have such a great support system, a family that loved me and a community that really embraced me and celebrated me for that, I could have gone the complete other way, you know, cause my mom and I didn't have a lot of money. Like I could very easily be another statistic. So, um, very, very grateful for that and for the support. And I think that there's a lot of young people today that just need that kind of support, um, and someone to believe in them like that in, in order to make that difference and to change their path. I think that story that you tell about sort of internalizing those messages and then trying to prove uh, to break stereotypes and the pressure that's on you. And then you combine that, like you said, with your Christian faith as well, that also is discouraging, you know, a lot of those activities as well. We grow, um, mm -hmm. uh, I've raised my kids uh, in a very religious community as well, and, and they face many of those sort of same uh, you know, concerns and, and restrictions, but it's really interesting that you, you bring your faith into it because I think we're in a, we're in a climate right now where many people see faith and specifically Christianity as part of the problem, uh, yeah. not part mm -hmm. of the solution, uh, in, in the movement today, which is really interesting because if you go back to the, the civil rights movements in the, in the, you know, in the fifties led by Dr. Martin Luther King, who was a, a minister and um, you know, the, the, the seminal moment for me in, in peace building, I was in law school at Georgetown and I'd met Dennis Ross, who was the chief negotiator for Middle East peace. And he was talking about community work and the failure of, of kind of track diploma, uh, uh, track one diplomacy to get grassroots work done on the ground. And I asked him afterwards, how do I do that? And he says, you know, that's not my specialty, but he sent me to George Mason to meet Wallace Warfield, um, who was an African-American mediator who worked for the Federal Mediation and Conciliation Service, actually the very first, I believe, African-American mediator 
um, for that. And when I went down to set, sat down with him to talk, he slid across his desk a copy of Strength to Love by Martin Luther King and asked me, have I read it? And I said, well, I know Martin Luther King. I haven't read the book. And he's like, don't even come back and talk to me until you've read this, um, because this is this is the core of this. And actually, Strength to Love was the inspiration for the title Dangerous Love uh, in part. But King throughout that is weaving in his faith into Mm -hmm. social justice, uh, into the civil rights movement, into peace building in a way that breathes this vital life into Christianity for me that often is sort of missing in what you hear in, in sort of Sunday sermons around individual salvation or, you know, sort of things like that. It was about this sort of communal responsibility that we have um, for each other. Right. Mm-hmm. And even, yes. uh, even our enemies and, and makes the beatitudes, you know, just sort of come alive uh, in this really powerful way. It was like Jesus could have been talking to people in the South in the 1950s uh, with every single thing about turning the other cheek or um, loving your neighbor or loving, loving your enemy. Um, but it's really hard to do. Mm-hmm. It's really, really, that, that's, that's, that's the hard Jesus, right? I mean, it's hard enough maybe not to swear or just to, to drink or, or, <laughs> yeah. or smoke or, right, or whatever, but yeah. to love your enemy, um, yeah. that's maybe the hardest thing that Jesus asks us to do. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, you know, and as I got older, I fell away from a lot of the things I now see as very legalistic and started to focus on like, okay, what did he actually ask us to do? Like, what was like the commandment? Like, what are we actually asked to do? And it all centers around love. And so, you know, during this time when, I, when I'm seeing this and I'm seeing, you know, um, a lot of things I disagree with, with in the, you know, people pushing for the religion and fighting for the religion and, 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 and in that way. Um, and instead of, and I think, I think that the way that we're approaching this, again, like for me, it comes down to that kind of peace building approach, right? That conflict resolution approach of like how to attack the problem, not the person. But even farther than that, like actually really lean in to somebody's identity. And um, instead of trying to attack that identity or tell them that they're wrong or that they're bad or that, you know, um, and because this is what this is what is happening, I feel like in and with a lot of with a lot of white Christians and with, you know, I mean, culture, American culture has been blended in so much with Christianity that sometimes it's really hard to separate. And there's a lot of beautiful things about that identity that I think we can tap into about like around love, um, even like talk around like fear, like respect, honor, like a lot of different things is there's, there's different sides to those coins, right? It doesn't have to just be this, you know, like how, what do we think of as love and what, and, and how does that mean to actively, actively love other people? I think it's helpful to, so when I'm having these conversations, I see it as a place to connect. I'm like, we can connect on these shared values that I believe that we both hold. Um, and, and so it's been a great kind of common ground for me during this time. Um, I believe in order for reconciliation to happen, there has to be an acknowledgement of pain and wrongdoing in order to actually get to that place where we start to heal and then we can start to fix but we can't start fixing and we can't start healing until we acknowledge the pain and, and wrongdoing. And so that's been my thing. I'm like, man, what is, what is blocking people from acknowledging that pain and that wrongdoing that has been happening, um, that's been happening right now, currently, that's been happening the last 
few decades, last hundred years, like what, like why are we unable to acknowledge that? And, and I think it really comes down to people, that means like a breaking down of identity, which people really hold to their own. They're like, no, this is who I am and I'm not a bad person. America can't be racist because racist means bad. Therefore I can't be racist because I'm not bad and I don't have hate in my heart. And so a lot of it comes down to like how we communicate and, and how we find, find common ground with these, these people, not as a compromise, but as a shared value or common goal that we can come together on. A lot of great, great advice there, both about reconciliation and, you know, one of the models that I talk about in reconciliation in my book was by John Paul Lederach, who um, interestingly comes from the Mennonite tradition, which has a very strong sort of Christian peace building um, tradition, and he talks about four elements, the first being truth or acknowledgement, the second being mercy, um, but mm-hmm. that comes after truth and acknowledgement, right? Then justice, um, not the justice that tears down or the justice that's there to, to punish, but the justice that's there to make whole, um, yes. things that have, have been broken as part of the conflict, and then peace, creating a new world, a new interaction, a new structure that helps things go right in the future and all of these elements are are there in reconciliation but you often only hear this one about forgiveness and yes. and mercy <laughs> right and uh-huh. and i think it's it's what's really interesting is even that model that letterock puts in is actually very sort of biblically based as as mm-hmm. well but even christians often sort of default back to well, the mercy part which is which is for sure part of it right but um, you wrote uh, in your article on Medium that right, mercy without justice or peace without justice or you know reconciliation without justice or truth isn't real reconciliation. Yeah, no, it's it's not real peace, and I think that's and I think part of the problem. And like I'm a social change communication specialist, so I also I always default back to the words. But I think that there's a misunderstanding about the word peace itself, and that's why I often actually don't even. I don't use it unless I have time and space to really explain it. Cause I'm like, listen, you know, cause everyone has a different idea of, of peace. Um, wherever I go in the world, one of the first things I ask uh, is I'm like, okay, I put the word peace up on the board and I'm like, what's the first image that comes to your mind when I, when you look at this word peace and depending on who they are, I get lots of different images. Um, when I was in Colombia, you know, it was images of, of calm waters is what like a lot of people thought of there. Um, and when I'm in Africa, it's always people together, people holding hands, people coming together. You know, if I'm in the US, a lot of times it's hippies, you know, it's like the sunglasses, it's the flower kumbaya, power. Yeah. yeah, no, kumbaya, drum circles, all that. And so, you know, we have these, this understanding of, of what it is and peace a lot of times is calm, you know? And so I usually start by saying like, listen, like peace is not passive. Peace is not the absence of voices, not the absence of grievances, and peace is not even the absence of conflict. So conflict is an indicator that there's a problem, but it's also an opportunity for positive change. And this idea that like things just need to calm down is, as you're saying, that's negative peace. Like the lack of tension is negative. It's, 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 it's not helpful and it's not an actual healthy society for everybody. It needs to be a true peace or positive peace which where you're saying justice is actually addressed. And, and I think that there's just a common misunderstanding. And um, I think like even within the peace building field, sometimes it's hard because it's like, no, I need to be on both sides. Um, but that's not really how I 
see it, which is why I don't even use a term. Like I like if you go to our kick, Kickstarter for our game. Um, so I'm also the CEO of Wicked Saint Studios. And if you go and we talk about it as common ground activism, because it's like, no, like there's a way to step in courageously. And but the way to do that is through allyship. Like instead of trying to defeat the other side, see if you can make them your ally. See if you can see their common humanity and tap into what they care about most and actually achieve your goal. And, um, and I've actually found a lot more freedom in just being able to talk about like, no, I'm a common ground activist. That means I can have my feelings and I can stand up for the oppressed, and, but I'm going to do it in a loving way. And I found it to be really powerful. It's, um, I, I love that that view of allyship, because there's another one in conflict escalation, which is that I gather allies, right? I gather the people who agree with me. I shut out anybody who doesn't agree with me, right? right. I kind of get this army of justification around me that mm-hmm. makes me not have to actually sort of question my beliefs or whatever, right? I get this sort of the choir that preaches to me that I'm right and everybody else is wrong. This sort of allyship actually requires you to bridge divides, and mm-hmm. and connect and ally with the very people that might be looking at you or or in in conflict with you and it's a it's 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 actually the epitome of what I'm writing about in my book dangerous love right that that feels dangerous in conflict um, yeah. where sometimes just getting people to side with you or just sometimes when you're in the position of just siding with one side or the other and telling them they're right because it feels like that's the right thing or the friendly thing to do. My work in the Middle East, you know, some of the frustration that's there is there, there's clearly major injustice going on between the Israelis and Palestinians. There's major power imbalances. There's a number of things going on. And I've often had my Palestinian friends Ask me why don't why don't you just side with us? Like you see it, you see the you see the oppression sort of every day. Why is it that you're still talking to Israelis or working with Israelis or what have you? And you know my my thing back to them always is because I love you, uh, and yeah. and right and there is no solution to this conflict without the other side. There, there yeah. there's no way to solve this without the other side. And so I, I'm here trying to help build those bridges. Um, for you and has nothing to do with whether I think you're right or wrong. It just has to do with what I think our the future needs to look like for you to get those things that you feel like you need, whether that's physical security or economic security or identity security or what have you. Yeah, no, absolutely. I often say that like, I'm okay with putting aside the should for now. Like, um, you know, I shouldn't have to you know, expose my pain and I shouldn't have to continue to explain my situation to people who don't believe me or, you know, so like, there's a lot of like, you know, you shouldn't have to, but I'm making a choice that I will because there's an ultimate goal that I'm trying to accomplish, just as you're saying. And for me, and I think this is where like identity actually helps because the fact that I'm black, I can say, you know, listen, I need, like, I could call somebody a racist and I might win my argument and I might shut them down. Um, but is that person any more likely to want to help me? And no, probably, probably not. And so to me, it's not pandering. It's like, no, like, I need that person to see me. You know, I need that person who's probably on the edge that could easily be, you know, we talk about push and pull factors, could easily be pushed to extremism or to, to people that are willing to accept their more extreme views about my color of my skin and my background. 
Like that's the person I need most because I need my kids to be safe. And so that's the person I need to talk to the person that, you know, the people around me that are ready to be my allies. Cause I got a ton. I got like an army of people in Southern Oregon that are like, we got your back, Jess, what do you need? Like, we're here for you. We love you. So like, that's amazing. And that feels great. And sometimes you need that because this work is, can be really discouraging and it can be heartbreaking and you're putting yourself out there and it hurts. So like you need that community. Um, but ultimately like I'm going for the person that's, that's on the fence, you know, that like has like a little bit of opening in their heart to maybe want to understand another perspective. And, and that's, and that's the person I want to connect with and it's not easy. Um, but I know that if we attack them, we push them on the other side. And now that person who was not extreme all of a sudden is, and, and now it's dangerous because that person is going to become the teacher of my kids you know, that person's going to be in law enforcement, that person's going to be creating laws, um, or just, you know, not willing to step in if something happens, you know, it's be as simple as like a bystander. That's when something, you know, of course, I always go back to my kids, if something's happening to one of my children, or they're being discriminated against, or they're being verbally attacked, I need that person to be able to step in for me. And if I'm not there, you know, and that's the kind of society want to build, but it doesn't, but it's hard because, you know, so that's why I always make sure that I acknowledge the pain and especially the pain in other people and other people of color who are exhausted um, and are frustrated and are angry and upset. And I'm like, you should be like, that's how I always start. You know, I'm like, yeah, you absolutely should be pissed off and you should be hurt and like, go ahead and feel everything that you're feeling. Like, I'm not going to lessen that. I'm not going to de- dismiss that whatsoever um you know this is just a path that I choose to do like you know if you choose to do it too that's great if not like it's not for everybody um but I do want to empower more people in this approach because it's it it actually does work it doesn't always work the first time <laughs> it, might, it might take a few copies it might take a year to a couple of years of just these interactions but even if people don't seem open you know, after your first conversation, a lot of times it gets them thinking and, and it's, you know, and it, and it creates that opportunity. I was really touched by the opening lines of the article you wrote for uh, medium. I'm black. I'm a peace builder. I want your help. We're going to link to this by the way, on our website so that everybody can read this. But this, this was, was striking to me of the many things that I've read, many, which are moving, This one was striking to me, maybe because of my background in peace building, what you wrote. You started and said, I am black and I am grieving. I thought the days of public lynchings were over, yet here I was in the digital crowd watching a black man being suffocated in broad daylight by the people sworn to protect him. It happened because of a broken system and lethal assumptions related to black skin, a brokenness that has long been ignored. I feel stripped raw. Despair and rage both threaten to swallow me whole. But here's the thing. I am also a peace builder. And um, that, those last lines, I don't, I don't think maybe people totally understand how hard it is to write those lines after everything that you wrote above. Mm-hmm. It, it touched me because the pain was there. You can feel it. I think every, everybody in some ways in America is feeling it, right? And in different mm-hmm. ways, but, but certainly in the African-American community, but here's the thing. Can you just talk to me about how 
when, you know, when, when emotions are as strong as they are, I've had so many people come to me and, you know, there's usually two approaches that people handle strong emotions. One is like, don't feel them. Like, right, you know, like you, you shouldn't feel these things, right? Because they're bad, yeah. they're bad, right? Uh-huh. And we know that's uh-huh. not healthy, right? Like uh-huh. these are exactly the sort of emotions that you should be feeling after watching yeah. what's happening in America today. Like there's, there's actually something that I question whether our humanity is working right if we're not mm-hmm. feeling these sort of emotions. I think there's other questions we need to ask at that point. But then there's the other one is, oh, okay, you're feeling those emotions. So like, just, you know, stand back, don't do anything. Like just, just grieve, like almost sort of treating people that are feeling these emotions as fragile and therefore you can't do anything constructive or positive with them. But here you are both feeling deeply these emotions, but then trying to also build something that's, that's really, really hard to do. And I'm curious how you do it. Yeah. So this is actually more of a recent development for me. Um, So in the past, I have not been super sensitive. Um, And I think a lot of us do this in the peace building build is like when you see human suffering a lot, you have these walls so that you can continue. Right. Um, You, you have these, this, I should say walls, I should say armor Um, because if you feel everything, sometimes it can just feel crippling and that that just makes a day, you know, it just makes the days really hard. Um, and so I had not allowed myself to feel a lot and especially things that happened directly to me because I was like, you know what? I've seen a lot worse. This is nothing. It doesn't help me reach my goal. So I don't need to feel whatever that emotion is, that negative emotion. Like I don't need to feel it. Um, and last year, um, there was a traumatic event. My mom, my mom had a stroke and all of this stuff that I had kept out just crashed in on me. And I got really sick, like physically sick. I, for two weeks, I could not, I had a high fever for two weeks. This is, this is pre COVID guys. So it's okay. I'm fine. Um, but I, you know, two weeks, I could not get out of bed. My hair was falling out. And I was like, there's something wrong with me. And I realized it was just my, my body was attacking itself because I wouldn't allow myself to feel emotions. And so I went through this whole process and I uh, went to this amazing gym, which like works on like physical stuff. It's called Drop Gym. Um, they they basically help. They take a neuroscience approach to working out and help you actually because your body stores all this stress and all this trauma and, and you know everything your body keeps track of. And so they do all these kind of physical stuff and this breathing to help you release that. Um, so I had done all this work. I'm like actually feeling my emotions, allowing myself to feel my emotions, and then you know, and then I watched the video of George Floyd. And then, you know, I wake up the next day and I see the destruction and, and I see the response to that from like the very top of our office about, you know, you start leading, we start shooting. And I just could not stop crying. I was sobbing. And I, the whole day, and this has never happened to me, just like the whole day I'm sobbing. And I'd also had a few interactions with my, with some conservative friends that, And I ended up offending them by just sharing my experiences and just sharing how I felt. And I was talking to another friend, like as I'm sobbing, so I'm like sobbing, talking to this friend. And I was like, I don't know what to do. I was like, I'm supposed to be the peace builder. You know, honestly, white people listen to me because they know they're not going to get bashed over the head. And so I have this audience. um, And, but I don't think, I can talk to them without offending them. And then I lose my audience. And then what do I do? Then I'm not the peace builder, you know? And so I was like having, so I'm having this discussion with her and 
she's like, I, she's like, I actually think it would be really powerful if people saw this. I'm like, they know you, they know your heart, they know what you do. And she's like, I actually think that you should talk about it. And, you know, if people get upset, like it's, it's not you attacking them, it's you sharing your experiences and you should be able to do that. And so the first one I wrote before that article, the first, I wrote a Facebook post and it took the title from um, another black activist and it was like, I'm not okay. And I just wrote this piece about not feeling okay and why I didn't feel okay and that I'm grieving and that the whole black community is grieving and that if you're getting lashed out at, that's because anger is a secondary emotion and these people are in pain. And so, and I think I, you know, and so I basically kind of ended it with, you know, um, like normally you can come to me with any of these questions, but I need a day or two. And so like until that time, like please research about this stuff. I'm like, watch the 13th um, on Netflix. And, um, and the response, the outpouring was just insane. Like I had so many people shared it on Facebook. I think I like, it was like almost like a hundred shares. Like I, and a, you know, I'm not like a public figure or anything, just like people that know me. Um, and then after that, then I started writing more and I started writing about like acknowledging the pain and like, that's all that needs to happen right now. You don't need to ask questions. You don't need to debate. You don't need to point out how wrong people's reactions are. Like the best thing you can do right now is just acknowledge. I'm like, people are grieving. And when, and when people are grieving, you just need to acknowledge their pain and be there for them. It's just need to be a presence. Um, and that got even more shares and stuff. And so that's when I was like, okay, like, let's write, let's write an article. And, and I'm going to allow myself to show how this impacts me. Cause again, it comes down to our shared humanity, right? It's hard to, um, it's hard to, you can dismiss a person, like, as you talk about in your book as an object, but when you see my pain as a human being, um, that's, that's, that's harder to dismiss. And I shouldn't have to do that, you know? Um, but I found that it's powerful and actually it was therapeutic for me as well. Um, I feel, you know, if you read the second article I wrote about America's identity crisis, like there's still feeling in that, but there's not as much pain. Like you can tell that there's actually more healing in that article um, because I'm on my, because I'm on the path to, to it. And so, but it, I mean, it's not easy. <laughs> at all and, it, and it's and it's really only a recent thing that I've been able to combine my feelings with what I know technically about conflict resolution thank you for sharing that I think that's going to be impactful for people to hear I know that we've wrestled with it you know my background in peace building is always wanting to try to start finding ways that we can collaboratively problem solve the, fu the, the future together. How do, we, how do we turn and see each other as people? But taking that, that giving that space for that, that feeling and those strong feelings and, and people feeling a little angry or a lot angry or hopeless or whatever that is, but then knowing that sometimes the best thing that I can do is also to start inviting conversation and then start finding ways to do that. It's been really hard. I mean, just gotten a lot of feedback from a lot of people that I work with. Some people too soon. It's not enough. I don't even want to hear this anymore. I'm, I'm done with dangerous yeah. love. Like, I'm yeah. sorry, let's go out 
and let's get rid of these fill in the blanks, right? Like, yeah. um, oh, we're done. You know, we hate all police officers now, or we're going, you know, wherever it is. And, um, and it's not, you know, I, I try to explain, it's not that I'm not alive to those sort of emotions, but because of the work and how long that I've worked in the field and because I've worked in the Middle East and, and seen these, these issues come up and over again, the only solutions that are sustainable solutions are the ones that we come up with collaboratively. And those are just really, really hard to do. And so I really appreciate your voice in this. Uh, talk to me a little bit because a lot of our, a lot of our listeners are always looking for great organizations to support and things to support. I want to talk about two things. I want to talk about Search for Common Ground. And, and what they're up to right now, because I think they're an amazing organization and that they work around the world, not just in the U.S. And, and talk to us a little bit about Search for Common Ground and your work there. And then uh, after that, let's talk about um, your Kickstarter project, because I think it's, it's really awesome. And I could see some of our listeners and readers wanting to get behind it. Awesome. Yeah, no, definitely. So um, Search for Common Ground is the world's largest dedicated peace building organization. And so we have offices all over the world. Um, I think it's 31 countries right now. And so everything from reconciliation after genocide, um, prevention of mass atrocity work, countering violent extremism, security sector reform, gender-based violence, refugee integration, conflict sensitivity work. I mean, we, so, so search does a ton of stuff. And I always say we, cause I'm like, I'm, I, you never quite leave search. You're what they say, like, once you're a searcher, you're always a searcher. Um, and so the, and one of the coolest things about search is that we, um, we empower local peace builders. So 90% of our staff is local to the areas that they work in. Um, so this is not a parachute in kind of thing, or it's like, we know what's best. Um, like all of this is run by like all of our peace builders are just the most incredible heroes, champions, incredible people that have lived through the conflicts themselves. They've been impacted by the conflicts and, and they're still choosing, they're, they're still choosing this. They're still choosing to, to, to pursue peace and, and this approach. And it's so inspiring. Um, I, I often think, you know, cause I never get like that celebrity, like shy, you know, when I like meet celebrities, but like the peace builders, I am like a fan girl, like 100%, like they are incredible. Um, you know, like just this, like just this week, I've been talking with two, um, two women from Nigeria, Northeastern Nigeria, who are working with, um, former captives in Boko Haram who are, and, and, you know, their work is so extensive. Um, it's everything from like, how do we prevent this? How do we set up early warning systems for people? And, you know, how do we get these messages out? And so it's like prevention, it's rehabilitation. Like when we get these women back, um, like how do we give them the tools? Some might need de-radicalization type of programming. They need support, they need education, they need food. Like how do we get them that? And then stigma afterwards. So it's like, now that you're free, you know, you, what if your community doesn't accept you? And so then it makes you want to go back. And so it's like working on the community, community levels. And so that's just like one, pro, like that's just like, so everything is so multifaceted and the work we do is incredible. Um, the week before I was talking to our, um, he was our country director in Yemen, um, Shoki, and now he is, um, actually no, it was earlier this week. So I was talking with Shoki. So he's from Yemen. Um, and just, and now he's doing all of our conflict sensitivity for the Middle East. And 
he like his story and his uh, is just incredible. Like he got started really as a young kid because he learned English and then wanted to be a librarian just because he loved learning and, you know, started to look around at his country and realize what he was seeing was symptoms um, and not the reason behind the suffering and that the, the, the reason behind the suffering was actually this conflict and this violence and this approach. And, um, you know, he has, done, Yemen is one of the worst humanitarian crises in the world. And now with COVID on top of it, it's just horrific. But he's still out there trying, you know, he's being persecuted because he's become a figure, but that hasn't stopped him. And so the, the work of Search for Common Ground, you know, um, Search for Common Ground has this approach, it's called the Common Ground Approach. And it's all about, you know, um, and the common ground approach is not about compromise. It's about that highest common denominator. So focusing on um, shared interests instead of separate positions and shared goals. So that shared humanity and those shared interests and, and getting people to work together towards those, those common goals. And um, so everything from these participatory theater in areas. And so this is something that's another recent project that they were doing in Guinea. Um, where after the Ebola crisis, no one would go back to healthcare centers. And so they use participatory th theater to travel around to the different villages to get people to participate, to start building trust again between healthcare workers, between medicine, um, talk about some myths around that there was around vaccines and around healthcare and all that stuff. And it came at the perfect time. So that started in like 2018 and like now COVID is hit. You know, and so now, and so it's, it's laying the groundwork for a lot of incredible things. So participatory theater, they have some TV dramas where they, you know, put people in all the different, ethnic, whatever the conflict is, that will comprise the team of the, it's called the team. It's a little like a soccer, um, sorry if you're listening from not in America, football, um, television reality or television drama show and you know they have reality television where they help like what does good governance look like um so they actually did that in palestine um called the president which was really amazing they had young people basically apply to like what it would be like to be a leader and they could vote and like the whole all the territories could vote the sms so they do a lot of cool projects they work with journalists they work with women um you know, so just, um, they work in prisons with de-radicalizing, you know, people that have been convicted of um, terrorist acts. And so uh, Search just does a lot of cool stuff, but really what makes Search really special to me personally is just those, those local peace builders that are always looking for solutions, no matter, and a lot of them have lost family members. Um, you know, they've lost livelihood. Some of them have been displaced. And, but yet they're still putting everything on the line to build a better community around them. So it's pretty amazing. Does Search have anything going on in the United States around Black Lives Matter right now? Are there any projects that are ongoing or spinning up for, for Search for Common Ground here in the United States? So they have some stuff spinning up. Um, prior to all of this, um, we used to actually have a really robust um, department around congressional conversations on race, where we used to actually train congressmen on how to have these conversations with their constituents of color. Um, and we used to do a, a lot of race work. A lot of that funding dried up, ironically, <laughs> like way before, I think it was like into like 2000, 
2014. Um, but they're currently have a, a new project, a pilot project. I think it's okay to talk about this um, called First Year Connect. And so they're using virtual exchange. So it's, um, I don't know if you've heard of Solia, but there's incredible um, subsidiary of search and they do virtual exchange and they've been doing it for years um, across countries. So like Middle Eastern students and like American students, but like American students in Kentucky and like facilitating conversations. And so they thought this would be a great thing to do on college campuses, especially for incoming freshmen as a part of orientation that, um, and especially in places where, you know, like, because we're seeing a lot of race issues on college campuses, as well as other types of polarization, uh, political and stuff like that. And so to actually start giving these students some of these tools and have them start connecting with um, students that are different than them before they actually arrive um, on college campus. And so this is a pilot project project going on in two campuses right now. Um, and so, but they're hoping to extend it to as many college campuses as possible. I think that's an amazing idea. Uh, as a college professor uh, that's at a very diverse university, we have um, 3,000 students from 90 different countries. Uh, and so it's, it's, there is this mistaken belief that if we just put you all together <laughs> on campus, everything's going to work out great. And then <laughs> yep. you go to the you know cafeteria and the Koreans all set with the Koreans and the Japanese students all set with the Japanese students. Yep. And, you know, it's, it's just like little, little countries just sort of separate and there really isn't a, a path. In fact, we started our first intercultural peace building um, class and intercultural communication in part to try to give them, but it's not required. You're not, and it's not something you do, you know, beforehand, to, to start to give them some ways of thinking about and then ultimately some tools to work with about how to really have the thing that we always sort of pride ourselves in at the university, which is we have the all the, you know, it's so diverse and, but, yeah. <laughs> you know, diversity of thought, diversity of curriculum, you know, there's a lot of also other, other ways that I think especially universities need to be rethinking um, what they're doing um, around these issues. So that's awesome. Tell me about, Wicked Saints. Uh, is that right? Wicked Saints? Yes. This is, yes. You're, you're the CEO. This is a new organization that you've, uh, that you've started. You've got a Kickstarter going with it. Tell us what you're up to. Yes. And so um, Wicked Saints Studios. So we make interactive story games that are wickedly fun and actively good. Um, so basically we, so my partner, Alicia and I, so my partner has her background in psychology, especially positive psychology. And she's also a former searcher. Um, and so, you know, we've definitely taken a lot that we've learned in our peace building work, um, but also we've pulled from other places as well. Um, so I've done some, some of the, um, let's see, I'm trying to think who I should name first. So I am your protector. I don't know if you've heard about them, but, um, Danny Lawrence runs, I am your protector and it's really incredible. And so she's basically found that people are almost instantly transformed when they've been saved or protected by their perceived enemy. And so she has some really interesting steps for like how to intervene in, in a way that does not cause more harm to yourself or to others. Um, also, um, Dan Lebowitz at Northeastern University is, um, has a violence prevention program. And, that, and their violence prevention program is so interesting because instead of like, so I went for three days and I kept waiting for them to tell you what to do. Like, okay, like give me the steps you know, tell me exactly what to do. And they didn't. All they did was they kept taking you through scenarios. And um, they, you know, kept taking you through scenarios and giving you different options for how you'd respond. And you discuss that as a group. And so 
um, Alicia and I for a while have had this passion of like, how are we going to activate millions of young people for common ground activism? Like, how do we activate people with these skills to attack the problem instead of each other? Like, how, like, how are we going to reach millions at a time? And so we had a couple pilots and all this other stuff. Um, and I should say is one thing that we know is that people's behavior changes not by giving them information, um, but through experiences. And so our, so we started to map out this hero journey and, and we're like, and we thought, you know, well, let's prompt people to have these experiences. And we did this through an app. It was called Battle for Humanity at the time. And it was all about prompting people to have these experiences on and offline. And so you'd sign up, you'd get your own profile, and you could go do missions that are on and offline. And um, it worked, you know, it worked pretty well. We had about 900 people from all over. And the, but the problem was, is, and so it was, for example, it's, you know, we had a, when we had the shooting in Pittsburgh, we sent out a push notification to everybody on the app. I was like, hey, everyone, go leave flowers and words of encouragement at your local synagogue to show your Jewish community that you support them and are behind them during this tough time. And um, that was a really, so I did all the missions myself, of course. So I went to my Christian church and pastor and I was like, hey, can you ask everyone to bring flowers? And so flowers and words of encouragement just came and bundles. And then I just drove around and dropped off flowers at the three synagogues in, in the town next door. Um, and it was this great building bridge exercise where then the rabbis were so thankful and they called my pastor and he ended up having a whole tour of the, you know, the synagogues. So it was really cool. So that, those were the kind of things that we had on our pilot. Um, that, but we found that even though most of the kids that signed up for it wanted to change the world or do something, very few of them would actually go out and do something. And so we're like, okay, like what is, like what is stopping them? Like what is that barrier that's keeping them from actually engaging? And um, long story short, I ended up doing this. I was having this talk and I was asking all these young people like, okay, what's your hope for the world? They were going on and on about all these social issues. I'm like, okay, they have a lot of knowledge. I'm like, okay, how many of you feel like you can do something about that? And out of, um, it was, so they were about 14 years old, a freshman class, a class about 120, because I went for two days. And out of my time, I only had two kids raise their hand that said, yes, like I can do something about that. I can make a difference. And so that's what told us that the problem was the lack of self-efficacy. So self-efficacy is your belief in your ability to accomplish a goal. And these young people didn't believe that they had any power in the world around them. Um, and social cognitive theory says that self-efficacy is a number one indicator whether someone will take action or not. And so, but there is one place where they can always go and they always have a chance to win and they always have a chance to improve and they always have a chance to be a hero and that's through gameplay. And so game, we found that there's, there's actually a lot of studies that show that gameplay significantly increases self-efficacy. Even only 40 minutes of gameplay can significantly have long-term effects on self-efficacy and really build it up in young people. Um, so I started looking into gameplay. And part of the reason is it gives you a chance to practice something and then get feedback in a safe, fun environment. Um, and so then I stumbled into interactive story games. And so interactive story games, so um, if you've ever read a Choose Your Own Adventure book, 
it's that's yes okay awesome so that's what it's like but it's on your phone so it's on your phone and it's kind of graphic novel style so it's like a comic book where you you know you design your avatar how you look you have your name in it and then little you know text boxes pop up and you interact with other characters and you go through this story and like the background scene changes and so um as soon as I discovered this I was like oh my gosh this is like the next evolution of media-based behavior change because here I am traveling around the world so I've trained activists all over the world and I train them in storytelling and storytelling is powerful right because it gives people an experience vicariously well with interactive story games like you, it's no more vicarious, you are the main character. So you get to decide how to respond in different situations. And then you experience the consequences of those decisions. And you get feedback on how and how well it went. And especially if you add, you know, actual points and stuff in and how it plays out. And so it works perfectly with conflict because, you know, in a conflict situation, if you respond aggressively in a situation, the chances of retaliation is really high. If you respond passively, you become a bystander and you leave victims vulnerable. But between responding aggressively and passively, there's all these other ways that you could respond that would actually de-escalate the situation, that could prevent harm and, um, and actually solve the problem and protect, and protect others. And so what a better way to do that, to practice what to do in these situations. Like, what do you do when a bully's coming at you? What do you do when a bully's coming at someone else? What do you do when you're having conflict with your parents? What do you do if someone's yelling racist things to somebody in the classroom and, and you know what's wrong? How do you intervene in a way that actually makes, actually improves the situation? And so that's what we're building. So that was a really long explanation. But so this is what we're doing with Wicked Saint Studios is that we're building interactive story games that are wickedly fun. So you actually, so you have drama and romance. We're gonna, hopefully I'm talking to an amazing artist next week. So hopefully amazing art. Um, but, you know, kids also get to practice what to do and how to be a hero in a constructive way. And then we'll give them missions to do in real life. And so that's kind of the, the really long-winded story of Wicked Saints. That's, a, that's amazing. Uh, as a father of a number of children whose biggest conflict in the home is prying the screens away from their, uh, their little hands uh, <laughs> yeah. because they're, they're so important to them, giving them content that actually is, is teaching them the sort of life skills. You know, I, I, I talk about this a lot in my book. Well, you know, one of the challenges, our fear of conflict in part is because we, we don't actually know how to navigate it. It's sort of the same yes. self-efficacy thing, right? Right. It's not something necessarily that I learn in school. Uh, you know, we, we, we should teach it, but we don't. A lot right. of it has to do with how I saw my parents interact. And if that's negative at all, Right. And if I get sort of negative messages about conflict there, then I tend to be a conflict avoider. If I have really low self-esteem, I tend to be a conflict accommodator. Right. Um, if I see things handled very aggressively and if I'm watching a lot of violence or things like that, I might be, you know, a really conflict competitor or what have you. And so giving them some tools and narratives and stories that they can work through themselves and get positive reinforcement, not when they pick up a gun and shoot the enemy, but when they learn to how to negotiate with the enemy or learn how to um, collaboratively problem solve, I, I, I just think that's a brilliant idea. I think it speaks to the heart of something more and more where, you know, we've been working with a lot of schools at our center trying to figure out how to do this in school. Yeah. And because of all the other pressures that teachers have and, and what have you, they want it, but it's not there. But if you can get this into something that you know kids are going to be on every day, uh, 
and that they actually care and are really passionate about. I think that's awesome. So where can we, if people want to come and support that, where can they go find out more about uh, Wicked Saint Studio? So you can go to our website. So wickedsaints.studio. So no, no S at the end of that studio. I know it's a little confusing. So wickedsaints.studio. And there you'll find our Kickstarter. You'll find more about us. So you'll find like, um, also we have another game that you could play right now for free. It's just a text-based game, but it's called Pitfall. And so it's my metaphor of peace building. So I use this metaphor all the time. It's actually shocking that I haven't said it in this podcast. It's like probably the only thing that I haven't used it in. Um, but yeah, so I don't want to give it away too much, but you'll have to go, you have to go play it. It's called Pitfall. And the only goal is to make it out alive and it's free and you just have to read it and it's text. And so you have to go and have some fun. Awesome. All right. You've been listening to Jessica Murray and Jessica, you've been amazing. I love the energy, the positivity and the vulnerability uh, to really be with us today. I really think that you're going to have a great impact on our listeners as well as all the people that I know that you're working with right now and touching and um, stay in touch. I'm really interested to see um, how this goes and, and how we can help with our with our community of peace builders and what have you. Um, you're just awesome. And we want to we want to see you doing a lot of other great things. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was so info- so much fun talking with you. And I already love what I've read about Dangerous Love. And so. I, I cannot wait to, to read the whole thing. Awesome. Thanks, Jessica. You've been listening to the Dangerous Love Podcast. Aloha.